Hey folks, John Carlin here. As many of you know, Cyberspace is a new cafe podcast that I host every other Friday. Guests who've made a significant impact in the world of cybersecurity join me to explore issues at the intersection of tech, law, and policy. For this week's episode, I speak with Chris Inglis. He's the former deputy director at the National Security Agency, the country's leading organization at the forefront of monitoring foreign intelligence with an increasing emphasis on cybersecurity. We discuss how the United States is adjusting to defend and retaliate against foreign adversaries in cyberspace, what it was like being inside government during the Snowden disclosures, and the challenge of developing and retaining top talent in government. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned with Preet. To listen to the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid .edu email can head to cafe.com slash student. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. There are four main countries that are attributed as the top threats to the U.S. and the West. China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea. What is it about these countries, uh, to your mind, that, that puts them on that list? And are there any others that should be joining them on that list? What puts them on the list is their behavior. What kind of motivates them to get on the list, right? That might be the question that you've asked. I think several things. One, um, each of these states doesn't want to have a head-to-head contest with the United States or its allies, right? A head-to-head contest for them, uh, military on military, economy on economy, um, you you pick the institution, um, is is a remedy for kind of loss and disappointment. And and therefore, they're trying to find ways to either compete or to, in some cases, conflict, but, but more often compete with us trying to find ways where they might have a natural advantage or perhaps um, they they might perhaps uh, be able to diminish our strategic advantage in those other lanes. Cyber is a natural. Um, The cost of entry is low. The ability to understand what an adversary is doing when they use cyber is harder. So, you know, the kind of the idea that you might be able to effect something, kind of, you know, sneak up, do it and and walk away with some degree of anonymity, um, there's a higher proposition to that. And these nation states, um, Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, tend to have a closer relationship with whatever might constitute a private sector in those countries and the public sector, um, such that there's a joined up nature, um, you know, between them that they can actually bring to bear, right, the powers of cyber and affect government purposes um, in ways that are cleaner, crisper than the United States can. It's not to underestimate what the United States could do from an offensive perspective, but this really is about the mismatch between somebody else's offense and our defense. Um, The last thing I would say that that makes them different, different in kind, is that um, at this moment in time, the United States is not um, engaged in an international effort to the extent that it might have been in times past. And therefore, this gives a greater opportunity for rogue nations to essentially kind of find the seams and and to dance through those. And so these four nations, I wouldn't say have operated with total impunity, um, but but they've done a lot more harm than they have suffered inappropriate um, kind of concomitant uh, consequence. And you've named the right four. I put a fifth on the list, not so much because it's like the first four, but, you know, whether it's... um, 
ISIS, ISIL, um, Al-Qaeda, uh, they don't do the same things as those four nation states. Uh, they don't really try to um, effect harm um, by disruption or destruction. But the radicalization that they use um, in and across the Internet, that, that's a real and material harm as well. And we have to think our way through, what do we do about that? How do we compete with that message and, and make it such that um, they don't accrue the benefits um, from an ungoverned space the way the other four do? I always get the question, I'm sure you have too, uh, you know, are you kidding me that North Korea is considered one of the most capable cyber adversaries to countries like the, the United States? How can that be? They're an isolated country. They barely have any bandwidth. What What's your answer to that? Yeah, I, I was quoted some time ago, so I'll bring this back on this matter. I'm not sure I was proud of it at the time, but, but it still makes sense, which was that you know, if cyberspace and, and kind of the activities that ha- happened back and forth inside of it were the game of soccer, you know, or the European game of football, we'd be a few minutes into the game, right? Because it's early days, right? It's a relatively new um, domain of interest. And the score would be 450 to 442, you know, just a few minutes into the game, meaning that nobody's got a defense that, that really is kind of holding up and any offense will do, right? We're just kicking one goal after another into the nets. Um, and, and so you don't have to be great. You can just be the North Koreans, right, in, in order to achieve some uh, significant um, effect in cyberspace. Think about what the North Korean modus operandi is, right? For the most part, right, they're trying to figure out how to take advantage, not of the technology deficiencies in this space. Occasionally they do. Um, you know, WannaCry was one of those, but rather with the human errors in this space, you know, whether it's kind of convincing Bangladesh to make a financial transfer based upon some human operation, um, some influence operation using traditional instruments like telephones and messaging and um, kind of something sent across the Internet, but, but getting a human to make an error. Phishing attacks where they send you an email that you know purportedly comes from someone you know. It's not, right? It's just a, it's a Trojan horse. They want you to click on a link because you know, there's some interesting video behind that. And the code that you then execute is the code of the person who sent it to you. If it's the North Koreans, it's game on. Um, they've kind of they've mastered the ability to take advantage of the human dimension of cyberspace, um, kind of amplified by some continuing weakness in the technology, and doesn't cost much in order to do that. So the North Koreans are eminently capable of that. Why aren't there more North Koreas? Well, there aren't more clusters of people who have that mediocre technology that are willing to transgress, right, the societal norms. You know, it's it's an open door for them. Moving from, from nation states forward, I think you could make a similar point is around cyber criminals and the move towards a crime as a service model um, where threat groups are, I know I'm seeing this every day in practice and getting uh, victims from, from companies and estimates now say that businesses across the globe could lose $5.2 trillion, trillion dollars, $5.2 trillion to criminal enterprises by 2024, which is just astounding. Um, and you've seen a particular growth in ransomware incidents over 300%. Now you come from a national security background and deep one, and you've talked about terrorist groups, ISIS, so non-state actors, state actors, how do you rank cyber criminals and how do we think about them as, as a national security threat? Yeah, so there's a quantity argument and a quality argument, right? So if you ranked, right, the miscreants in cyberspace according to quantity, criminals win hands down. You know, I think by 
most recent thing I've read, 85% of the events that are kind of consequential bad events in cyberspace, it's criminals behind it. You know, that kind of desire to um, reconcile disparities in wealth, treasure, right, continues apace in cyberspace as much as it has across the the extent of human history that we're aware of. Um, Coming in second, um, nation states, uh, maybe, you know, kind of something taking up the majority of the remaining 15%, so just shy of 15%. Um, and, and while they're smaller in number, right, the quality factor comes in, they're hugely consequential, right, in terms of the, the, the impact. Um, and then, you know, third on the list would be um, ideologues, hacktivists, you know, those, those parties that, um, like WikiLeaks, are trying to operate according to some particular ideology to use weaknesses in cyberspace to advance that ideology, um, and then maybe kind of in the very marginal kind of you know contours of what's remaining, right? The kind of the odd experimenter, kind of you know the sixteen-year-old up after kind of curfew who has nothing better to do that kind of does something that's kind of destructive um, in nature. Um, so that's the quantity. I've implied what the quality is. Nation states clear in a way are having a fairly dramatic impact. And, and that inflection point occurred um, on or about the election of 2016, where the Russian nation state attempted to use the internet as a primary means of delivering an influence campaign. But regardless of whether they were helping one candidate or another, what, what they were really aiming to do was to reduce our confidence in a democracy um, that has served us well for 240 years. Um, and then in 2017, as we've already discussed, the WannaCry and the NotPetya attacks attributable to North Korea and Russia. Those are three events kind of undertaken by nation states that, you know, that swamp the huge number of criminal events. Um, if, if you will permit, I'd like to talk a little bit about this phenomenon that you've described of you know, ransomware attacks and now kind of something that's kind of creeping in distributed denial of service attacks. Yeah, that would be great. There are a series of ransomware attacks. You, you might have heard that whether it was the city of Baltimore or some number of other municipalities, uh, that they wake up one day and they find that all of their data, perhaps their servers, are um, kind of removed from their access because they've been encrypted. Uh, somebody's found a weakness or kind of a seam in their system come in and kind of mathematically scrambled all their stuff. And they have the ability to unscramble it. The adversary has the ability to unscramble it, but they'll do so at a cost. They'll charge you a million dollars, two million dollars. And, and this has been enormously successful on the part of the adversaries in this case. It's probably a criminal enterprise. Um, in some cases, this may in fact be a nation state that also happens to have a criminal enterprise. Think North Korea. Um, but it's been enormously successful. Well, why is that? Um, why, if we've seen this kind of play out once or twice or three times, why does it get to kind of like move from town to town and can continue to succeed? Now, back to a point I made earlier in the conversation, uh, we have approached this in some way, shape or form as a division of effort. You know, Baltimore needs to defend themselves. Pittsburgh needs to defend themselves. Houston needs to defend themselves. Now, the rest of us will kind of lean in and help, um, you know, if we have the time, energy, um, you know, if, if at that moment in time we can kind of see our way through to help you solve your problem. But we don't see this as a shared problem. You know, we actually know something quite a lot about, you know, some of these ransomware groups. Um, we know what their modus operandi is. Um, we know what's going to happen when the kind of first play is revealed where they say they've encrypted your stuff. Um, the FBI can tell you chapter and verse about what's coming because we can say we know who this group is. We know what they do second and third and fourth. We know whether they're trustworthy and essentially if you pay the ransom that they'll um, decrypt your stuff. Uh, we know what nations harbor them. We know what kind of legal systems essentially give them quarter. 
we kind of have a sense as to what the character of their next victim looks like. And yet collectively, um, there's no sin on the part of anyone, but there's a sin on the part of all of us collectively, yet collectively, we sit back and we allow that to happen. And, and we pretend that if we simply wait for it to arrive in the next town, that we can bring the fire brigade and put the fire out. But we wait until it's a one or two alarm fire. I think that's just crazy. We should essentially try to figure out if those things are inappropriate um, and they have you know, violated you know, our collective sense of what's right and appropriate. They violate the rule of law. We should go after them and we should essentially ensure that we bring them to justice in the same way that we would a bank robber, a literal bank robber. We wouldn't wait until they kind of show up in the next town and advise how you pay them off and save lives or perhaps, you know, minimal treasure. We'd go after them. Right. And so the things that we do at our best moments um, in terms of reacting to a crisis, we ought to do in the times of peace and tranquility when we know we can see that this threat is emerging as we speak. Right. There's a new phenomenon, which are massive distributed denial of service attacks that are being conducted in the modus operandi as described in an FBI bulletin released on last I hope you've enjoyed this sample from the United Security Podcast. To listen to our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. Interested students with a valid.edu email can head to cafe.com slash student. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.